welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. I'm your host, Joe Hawthorne, and today we're talking about public health and a global pandemic. The Spanish flu spread through World War I right at the end of our time period. However, this is the perfect story because it shows how violently the 19th century and earlier clashed with our modern era. Benjamin Kitchings, host of the History Voyager podcast, joins our show to explain how outdated science and medicine helped spread a deadly disease. The Spanish flu was a turning point for researchers and doctors who helped change sanitation, hospitalization, and other public health practices. So in a way, this pandemic can be seen as the end of Victorian medicine and the beginning of modern epidemiology. Living through COVID-19, you may have heard of the 1918 influenza pandemic. In this episode, Kitchings is going to explain what we think the Spanish flu was and how it racked communities. Crises like this give us a window into politics, economics, and culture from the past. Let's take a step through and learn about the Spanish flu. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here today with fellow podcaster Benjamin Kitchings as we discuss the history and consequences of the Spanish flu. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. I'm really excited to talk about this subject today because I think it's a really good nexus, a really good turning point <laughs> for talking about the turn of the century. Now, to get a basic understanding, can you explain what was the Spanish flu? I know it's a huge question, but how do we understand in a very brief way? Okay. Well, the brief way to understand is that we don't actually know. <laughs> we don't actually know anymore. So what happened was there was a this moment where we thought it was the flu. And we thought it was the flu for decades. When we when I say we, I don't mean you and me. I mean I mean the doctors. And some of the doctors that were working with it at the time, they kind of knew it wasn't the flu, but they didn't know what else to call it, so they called it the flu. Right? And then as time progresses, you start to see other people like survivors of the Spanish flu come down with strokes and seizures. And so people are like, no, that's not the, <laughs> the flu doesn't do that. You see what I'm saying? So, but let me back all the way up. Uh, there was a government report that was declassified in the 1950s, which is, or, or it came out in the 1950s. It was declassified by, by Bush, Bush the second. And the government report said that the Spanish flu most likely originated in Kansas around 1900. And it was in the, the American bloodstream from 1900 all the way to 1926 or 7. So, okay, so now we've established it's the Kansas flu, but keep going. All right. So essentially what was going on was there was a doctor named Loring Milner. And Loring Milner essentially was this basically a country doctor who was riding around in a carriage dealing with diseases that you get in Kansas. And he was writing to Harvard. He was writing to Harvard Med School, talking about, I've got this thing that's knocking out entire farmhouses, and they're dying of strokes and heart attacks and 
and this and that. And when you read Loring Milner's letters, and this is important, when you read his letters that were like in 1915 or 1917, depending on the seven or the five, like <laughs> literally, that's really what we're looking at is you look at this number and it's like, if that's a five, that's 1915. If 1917, if it's seven. But anyway, so he's writing these letters and he's saying, I've got this thing that's killing farmsteads and, you know, whatever. But the thing is, when you read the letters, it's you see it's not a flu. It's not a flu-like situation at all. It evolved into that. The proteins moved. The thing you need to understand is a virus has a generation of every two weeks. So the the Spanish flu virus or like the COVID virus uh, two weeks ago was in a different generation than it is now. Yeah. So, and I mean, I, I love comparing that too. That is something that I definitely <laughs> want to draw those parallels out. So then how do we think about this is the, the Kansas mystery disease? What do, what should we be calling this? I per I personally just call it the Spanish flu, just because that's what people call it. <laughs> but so so it's it's the Spanish flu plus is a kind of way of thinking well, about it, right? Well, I mean, okay, let's not let's not throw everybody under the bus here. Ten years ago, I now know that I had H one N one, and I now know that the doctor who literally I felt like sick as a dog and felt horrible, and I went into the doctor and I. Not even, not even when I had blood pressure issues, did my doctor literally take a bottle of pills, look me right into the eye and say, young man, you take every single one of these pills and you don't quit until the pills are gone. And you make sure to take them on time, drink plenty of water and get lots of rest. I've never had a doctor tell me that in those words. That doctor thought I could have the Spanish flu because I had H1N1. So people used to, th I mean, right thinking medical folks in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, thought the Spanish flu and H1N1 were the same thing. And so, so the question I'm getting at here, um, <laughs> and I think this is also, I have to give you a lot of credit because we're talking about an entire season of content um, <laughs> in a one conversation or two conversations. But what I want to get at is, why was this such a big deal? You know, what, what made the Spanish flu unique? It was the first flu that, or the, not flu, it was the first disease that spread through the power of steam. There was an industrial revolution that had taken place, okay? The industrial revolution had taken place, and the powers that be had, hadn't had any thought at all not only can you spread money and humans and goods and animals, but you can spread diseases. They didn't know. Okay. Woodrow Wilson did not know that you can spread tuberculosis on a train or a steamboat. And I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. So I never thought about this before, but I take it for granted. I think a lot of history students, um, lecturers, whoever take it for granted that, you know, when the Colombian exchange, Christopher Columbus going to the, the new world brought trade and goods, but also disease. Was that something that 
people understood at the time, too, that other forms of transportation brought disease? Or was that, you know, something that was affected by I, I love flu? that you say that, because here's my favorite thing in history, like my favorite thing to think in history. Imagine a stock market graph. Imagine the line of the stock market graph is essentially what you want to think of as human culture or human intellect. And all right. And, and you're looking at a line that goes up and down and ebbs and flows. So it's, it's entirely possible that some Muslim cleric in North Africa or in what is today Spain would have had a very amazing concept of diseases and that amazing concept of diseases did not get to my ancestors who were living in mud huts or your ancestors who were living wherever they were living. You see what I'm saying? Like, so we live in this world now where somebody in China can think something up, put it on the internet and then boom, we all know it. Or at least all the people plugged into that know it all over the world, pretty much at the same time. That didn't happen then. So what you're getting at, because um, I like the Woodrow Wilson example, is that the president of the United States didn't really understand how quickly disease could spread through, transport, through transportation, it was a through hoax. steam, etc. He, he literally thought the Spanish flu was a hoax. Even better. He, you know, but also it wasn't just throwing him under the bus. Let's, let's not leave everybody else out. I mean, the doctors that him that we lionize as doctors that, Hey, they figured this out or they, they figured out they were very much, first of all, they had to ditch what they learned before. They had to basically one doctor even wrote one doctor in Boston even wrote, you know, I, I used to think this about the flu because I was told this about the flu. Now I have to say, well, this is total basically crap, but this was very brave for these thinkers and doctors to to set aside essentially their thoughts that they had been trained. Let's narrow down even more into specifics. What was the scope of the Spanish flu by, let's say, the end of World War One? I? I think that's the famous, most famous part. So 1918. And let's start there. What modern the people, like? modern virologists and epidemiologists. And when I say modern, I mean literally in the last few years. Uh, believe that half a billion with a B people died either because of the Spanish flu or from it. So we're talking a stupid amount of people. Okay, we're, we're talking a massive amount. People would, doctors would write down, oh, you died of the cold or you died of whatever, right? And a couple of years ago, I don't even remember when this was, but a couple of years ago, there was a kerfuffle in Kansas because one of the things that one of the first descriptors of the Spanish flu was the blackface fever. Well, that sounds racist to you and me, doesn't it? So the people in Kansas were like, what is this thing called the blackface fever? Well, the Kansas medical authorities, now remember, the Spanish flu started in Kansas, right? Or at least that's what we think, right? So the Kansas medical authorities in modern times were like, okay, if you died of the blackface fever, you died of the Spanish flu. Because we're looking at Loring Milner's letters and we're saying, Loring Milner says that these people would cough so hard that blood vessels in their face would pop, 
causing them to look black. So he would say, well, this person died of the blackface fever. And I'm curious, I don't know if you mentioned this before, but do we have any idea of where it, like in Kansas, how this disease appeared? Well, here's what I'll tell you. And this is a very long-winded answer, and I'm sorry. (laughs) So let me first tell you how to get a virus, okay? The way to get a virus is to take... Basically, okay, viruses come from waterfowl, all right? Waterfowl or fish, and they manifest in GI tract of the waterfowl or fish, okay? And then the mammal that you're going to eat gets in the waste products of this virus, and then you eat the mammal. And then, well, if you don't cook it right, you get the virus. Now, the government said that this was in the bloodstream around 1900. Loring Milner discovered it either in 1915 or 1917. So the answer to your question is no. But we do know things that happened to the virus. Like there was a kid named Harry Underdown who had all these recessive traits in his gene pool and stuff. And the virus, he he had the virus, and then he was sick a little bit, and then the virus went back into his system and then killed him. Now, because the virus was able to do that, it was able to mutate into a serious killer. Uh, You can win trivia night by repeating this fact right here. Harry Underdown killed more people than Stalin, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, uh, every war America's ever fought in, most of the wars of Europe combined, and I'm missing something. I mean, I'm, Harry, Under, Harry Underdown is the number one killer of human beings on the planet. He's kind of like this patient zero, although now I know that patient zero is a misnomer, but he's kind of... He was, he was one of the patient zeros for Europe, but he was not patient zero, zero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have to be very careful with, um, you know, the the medical terms that uh, we use and what we do and don't know. Speaking of what we don't know or what people don't know, we've hinted at this. But since we're talking about the turn of the century, I want to focus right now on the 1800s and before, right? The, the things that influenced the things before the pandemic, basically. So what medical practices or lack of proper medical practices influence the spread of this pandemic lack of medical practices a total lack of medical practices in at all like total lack of um okay so basically there was a thought that if you there was a thought that it existed all over europe and all over basically all over america that basically uh the flu only killed poor people and not only did it only kill poor people but it only you know it only killed uh, poor people that were ethnic groups other than the dominant ethnic group, which was English. The dominant ethnic group wasn't even white. It was English people, right? You were being inclusive to include Scots and Irish. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So so that means that, you know, if we're talking about the U.S., um, then, then Germans, Italians, African-Americans, 
you know, if you're not being um, generous and you include Scots and Irish, right? Well, you uh, don't include Irish. No, Irish is are were worse than Germans. I mean, they were Woodrow Wilson was insanely racist against Irish people and German people, and you know. Anyway, so but let's get back to your question. <laughs> right. Well, I'm also thinking about you know. Um, I was listening to your episode, uh, which I highly recommend about San Francisco, about Philadelphia, and I was thinking about sanitation. So, what are some of the other practices that I guess weren't practiced? What are things that were missing? that led to the spread lots of things so philadelphia at the time you had the billy migration which is what historians term the the migration from appalachia into uh urban society in america right okay philadelphia was one of the big beneficiaries of the billy migration okay in philadelphia pennsylvania you had young men who had never washed their clothes in their lives, did not know about bathing, did not really know about sanitation or food preparation or re any of that. Just basic things that it, most bachelors today know, how to wash clothes, how to bathe, things like that. In fact, bathing came from the Spanish flu, partly. That's, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless, but keep going. <laughs> Well, let's let's paper over that incredibly big statement for now. <laughs> let's keep talking about, you know, what are what are practices from the pre-Spanish flu period that influenced the spread of the flu? Well, like I just said, the lack of sanitation, the total lack mm -hmm. of sanitation, the fact that there was no there was no concept of citywide sanitation. Or a lot of cities didn't have running water. Think about this. If you've got, say, 100,000 people who don't know how to clean their clothes, don't know how to wash their clothes, don't know how to cook animal flesh properly, and then you've got a pandemic, or, okay, you've got a disease that has a bigger mortality percentage than COVID does, which is spread at least partly through not being sanitary <laughs> and living closer together and all sorts of stuff, you're going to spread that disease. When you add over top of that, that the doctor that the sick person might encounter might not think that white people can die of the flu, right? He might be on board that the Spanish flu kills people. Like he might think that people can die of the Spanish flu, just not this guy in front of me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what would doctors, let's say, I don't know, the average doctor do as treatment for the Spanish flu if they even believed that someone could die of it? Well, we need to get rid of the idea of the, we need to essentially get rid of the idea of the average doctor. Because there wasn't okay. such thing. <laughs> Good start. Okay, so eliminate that. You know, if the doctor was educated enough to maybe think that people were all the same, which he wouldn't have thought entirely, like interracial marriages didn't happen. Okay, <laughs> like, you know, you know, what I'm saying he, the doctor might have believed that that you and I can give each other a disease. 
on some intellectual level. They might, but they wouldn't have had evidence of that. Other, you know, they wouldn't have had evidence of that that they could point to. Well, so let me rephrase the question a little bit then. What were possible treatments? No treatment worked. That's the other thing. There were no treatments that actually worked. They would try to make you comfortable. They would put you at an angle. They would, you know, but nothing they tried actually worked. But then again, there's a lot of thought uh, from modern virologists that what we call the Spanish flu might not have been one disease. You know, they didn't have microphones or microscopes, sorry. (laughs) They didn't have microscopes. They never put a live Spanish flu virus under a microscope. There was never any proper analysis of a, of a living Spanish flu virus. So we don't actually know what it was. We don't actually know. There was, there was a thought that it could be cholera plus something else, except cholera doesn't kill you the way Spanish flu kills you, right? Okay, you die of dehydration from cholera. With the Spanish flu, you would die either from your lungs would fill up with this pus which we generally call mucus, but it was as thick as caulk, basically. Or you died of a stroke, or you died of a heart attack, or your brain would would suddenly starve itself of oxygen to where you would you would scream and then you would die. And also there's the timeline that's weird. In a lot of cases you could be healthy in the morning and be dead before sundown. There were a whole lot of cases of that. I was speaking back to your episodes about individual cities. I think it was in San Francisco that someone was in a divorce court, right? And they announced they had the, the Spanish flu. That's right. And then they were dead by the what the evening, the afternoon, which is terrifying. It's terrifying. and you, you don't have a, a standard set of doctors you know, if you think about treatment being moving you a little bit in bed, that's terrifying. I So I'm curious, you know, what are other parts of society that we can understand through studying the Spanish flu? I think that the military or, you know, military hospitals, um, normal hospitals, uh, what other pieces of the early 1900s, 19-teens can we understand when we're talking about the Spanish flu? Well, here's something you can understand um, right away. The way to the way that you and I can look at a person and okay, here's how to say it. The way to die of the Spanish flu is to drop dead adjacent to a doctor who thought you could have died of the Spanish flu. There were a whole lot of people who died of the cold in San Francisco. There were a whole lot of people who died of something that nobody knows what it was. There was the curious case of, they call it the curious case of uh, Mrs. McGinty's boyfriend or something like that. I forget. It's a lady's name and the word boyfriend. Okay. But he died of a fever, fell into a vat of flour, and everybody who ate bread out of that flour died. That's not the flu. That's not what you and I would call a flu, right? <laughs> That's something else. So one thing to understand, one window into the 19th century that we get from the Spanish flu was this was a period of time that had this amazing technological breakthrough, series of breakthroughs 
that they hadn't really thought out. They hadn't considered, they hadn't widened, you know, thought of the ramifications of this. Another thing is you see the 19th century classism, you see 19th century racism play out every, you know, in every which way, like every, everywhere you go, you, you see how you can have these adult men who don't know how to clean themselves and don't know essentially how to do basic housekeeping things, right? So you see that the, the families in the 19th century, the family unit was bigger. They conceived of themselves as not just the nuclear family, but extended families living, living in houses or around farmsteads. Uh, the other window that, that you and I can gain from the Spanish flu and how to survive the Spanish flu that maybe would have evaded or would have evaded detection from a from an, an earlier person is that with the Spanish flu, so the other, okay, you could be adjacent to, you might not be a farmer, but you could be adjacent to being a farmer, right? You could be adjacent to a farmer or you could know a farmer or whatever. So it's easier to live off the grid, which brings me to the other reason that the Spanish flu death total keeps rising, which is very few people in 1918 we had interactions with authorities the way we would think of today, right? You and I have more interactions with authorities in a month or in two months or in a six month period than a lot of people had in their lifetime. I mean, when you go to the DMV, that generates a record. When you go to, uh, you know, you go to the DMV, you, you pay your power bill, you pay your, you're this, you pay your cable, you, you, da, 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 da. there's paperwork on you. You might, there might be people that there is no paperwork on <laughs> that manage to get to be adults and then drop dead of the Spanish flu, but they don't call it that. And I think that's, that's a great example to describe what you were just talking about earlier about all these technological changes coming into being that people could interact you know, with steam power, with with the industrial revolution or the the effects of it, but also not really have any records of them, and and not you know be able to track the consequences of the things you're just talking about. So what I want to do is pause our conversation right here because I think we've kind of reached the some of the darkest parts of the Spanish flu, but also an understanding of what it was, a bit of the history about it. So we're going to come back and talk next week about after effects, the ending or the winding down, I guess, of the Spanish flu, and learn a little bit more about some of the parallels, ways that history might not repeat, but might rhyme a little bit um, in a future episode. So Ben, thank you so much for talking. I really enjoyed it. If people enjoyed listening to your expertise and your voice, where can they find you? The historyvoyager.podbean.com. I'm on, it's called the History Voyager. I'm on every podcatcher you can imagine, Apple, Spotify, uh, CastBox, you name it. I'm there, just the History Voyager. Right now I'm interviewing people. I was going to do the Enlightenment, but the more I get into it, the more I realize, no, the Enlightenment doesn't really affect people the way I thought it did. Which that's all another conversation. So, so uh, uh, season two is uh, still in, in the works. Then I'm, I'm no, I'm interviewing people. That is season two.
Okay. I'm actually interviewing people, and I'm going to do a deep dive in something. I haven't quite figured out what yet. Well, I highly recommend your season one, then, uh, which is a deep dive on uh, the Spanish flu, and season two, which is full of great conversations on a variety of subjects that do affect us. I'm also, I've talked to a woman that covered the coup in Venezuela, for example. That's a that's a highlight. So this sort of interviews, it grew out of the fact that I wanted to talk to people about COVID, about, about them living with COVID or them living in COVID's world, basically. What is that like for you? And that's, I mean, I think that's great. And I mean, <laughs> Venezuela is, you said Venezuela, right? Venezuela, yes. Yes. Okay. I mean, I think that's awesome. I think uh, conversations about people from Venezuela to, you know, supermarket cashiers and everything in between are super relevant um, and a great connection to going from the Spanish flu towards our modern era. So speaking of which, I hope you join us next time for a conversation about more of those connections. In the meantime, if you enjoyed my voice, then you can subscribe here at Turn of the Century. You can also rate, review, tell your friends about it. It really helps us get discovered and bring on more amazing guests. So thank you all. See you next week. 